a pleasure to uh, be with you all this morning. I, I wanted just to start by uh, saying thank you to you all. Uh, you all support my wife Katie and I in our endeavors to be able to bring the gospel to college students all around Chicago. And this is my wife Katie here, Miss Katie Chambers. You stand and say hello. She directs the, uh, the outreach over in, uh, at Lake Forest College. She's over the ministry there to the college students. And I just wanted to start just to give you a little snapshot of what we experience almost on a daily basis and what your giving is going towards. We take our students every year down to uh, Panama City Beach, Florida for spring break, right at the close of their school year. That's the number one spring break spot in all of the country. 220,000 college students come. And I just want to just paint this picture. If you can imagine being on the beaches, and it's like a big rave, just an ocean of partiers. Uh, beer pong is being played. People are smoking hookahs. People are just hanging out, just tanning, just relaxing, having fun on the beach. And God sends us into the environment. The boldness and the compassion that was in these students' hearts allowed them to be able to step out and serve the community right there on the beach. With boldness and compassion, they came across a young lady named Jessica who was deaf since about maybe about eight months years old. She had uh, her bones get crushed in both of her ears. And by taking the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in word, deed, and sign, they prayed for Jessica and she was able to get all of her hearing back and doesn't have to wear hearing aids anymore. That led a spiral of many, many other healing miracles that translated into people wanting to hear the message that we preached to them on that beach. Over 800 people got a chance to hear the gospel that week. And over this school year, over 2,000 people got a chance to hear the gospel. And we're seeing the kingdom of God go forward into an environment that has been dark, ignorant, and disenchanted with the faith. So I just want to say thank you to you all and what you all are supporting in our work as we go forward with the gospel. And this is what we're talking about today. We do that on the beaches, in the bars. Where will you do it? We're going to talk about expanding your kingdom influence today. I'm just going to say a brief prayer, and we'll go into it. Daddy, I thank you for your love for us. It's such a high, high privilege that you have raised us up to seat with you in heavenly places and to become partners with you in your world. Thank you. Holy Spirit, expand our vision, enliven our hearts, and embolden us to bring forth the kingdom of God where we live. Amen. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus steps on the scene making this audacious announcement. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I can imagine that the Jewish community might have been a little perplexed at this announcement, and his disciples may have been bewildered because this kingdom was not being seen at the present moment. Like a pregnant mother who is overdue, the Jewish community is filled with angst because they are awaiting the rise of their Messiah, this great king that God would arise and anoint to return the power and the glory to his Jewish people. This Messiah would blow in like a whirlwind, delivering these people from Roman oppression. They would no longer be the victim of a centurion's extortion, nor taken advantage of by greedy tax collectors. No, when this king comes in, he will not only deliver them from the oppression, but he will do something more important. It will be, a, signify, it will be a, a symbol and a signifying declaration that the presence of Yahweh God has returned to his people after nearly 400 years of being exiled from his presence. Jesus proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was now would have meant that those that were oppressed have, and were the tail have now become the head. And the tables have been turned on Rome. Those that trampled upon, were trampled upon, will now return the favor to Rome. 
They were expecting God's kingdom to come and totally dominate everything in its path. This can be seen when Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Isaiah foresaw a time when God's rule would increase more and more until the kingdoms of man would come and bow their knee to him. He also foresaw a time when the goodness of God would be on full display and God would bring an increase of all prosperity and peace for every aspect of life. And because of this, because of this expectation, there's an implicit question that can be heard in the tone that the disciples and the Jewish community constantly have when they interact with Jesus. If the kingdom is here, then where is it? This is the question behind much of the doubt and the cynicism that is in our culture in regards to our Christian faith. This can be illustrated in an, in, in an encounter that we had on campus in InterVarsity. One of our students was standing at a table as we were talking about the AIDS pandemic and the dehumanization that people feel when they have this plight in their lives. As we began to engage with the, with the community, we approached one student who was a pre-law student. And he said, you know what, I don't really want to talk about that with you all. I know what you Christians believe. You believe you just want to have all of us go to heaven and tell everybody just to want to go to heaven. And I don't want to do that. See, I want to go be a lawyer because I want to affect change here and now for people that are suffering but from AIDS. What this student lacked was an example and a model from our community of the kingdom of heaven being lived out in a practical way for our culture. He had a dream, God's kingdom dream even, of justice. And he was saying, okay, if the kingdom is here, then where is it? And for many of us who know God's desire to want to bring the kingdom and his plan to do that, I believe as we see the direction that our culture is going in, we also are plagued with the same question. God, if your kingdom is here, why don't we see it? In teaching on the kingdom in Matthew 13, Jesus offers somewhat of an explanation to the disciples who may be bewildered because their movement right now is small. As he teaches, he does not just reveal the destiny of his kingdom's rule, but he actually declares how this kingdom rule will establish and how it will bring bearing on our lives today. In Matthew 13, verse 31 to 33, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air may make its nest in its branches. Then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. There are two main points in this parable that I want to bring out. Number one, God's kingdom dream is, is going to become the predominant influence in this world. And number two, the way his kingdom influence will progress to his ultimate destiny is by mixing with the systems of this world. We've already been talking about the first point to some degree. The Jewish people expected God's kingdom to come and not only become the predominant influence, but actually to dominate. Jesus affirms this when he indicates that though the kingdom starts small as a seed, it will eventually grow to be the largest plant in comparison to the other plants. 
The tree's breath will grow so large that presumably birds that had homes and other plants will come and find its home in this tree. Jesus was pointing to a time when the tree of the kingdom would eventually win out and over-influence all the other trees and all the other plants, and its predominance will be surely known. This can be seen in the other surrounding parables in Matthew 13. Jesus, when he talks about all of these parables, what he is doing is he is actually posturing his disciples to see the brimming eschaton on the horizon. This was going to be a time when God's goodness will be on full display, when he brings justice to all systems of oppression and to all those that promote evil. It would also be a time when God would spread table of blessing upon blessing upon blessing before those who have reoriented their lives around his kingdom movement. With the eschaton brimming on the horizon, Jesus was trying to reassure his disciples by saying, stay focused. Even though it seems like our movement is small, I want to reassure you that the kingdom will become the predominant influence by the close of the age. As these words may have lifted the spirits of the disciples in the midst of them being small in light of Rome's oppression, I believe that this same encouragement and the same lifting of our spirits Jesus wants us to have this morning. You all here in Christ Church are very, very rich in good works. My church, the Sign of the Dove in Waukegan, is eternally grateful for what you all do and how you partner with us as we restore the broken in our community. Pastor Harry and I discuss this all the time, and we're just so appreciative for you all. And from our, our love, we just say thank you to you this morning. We're also aware that as you go forward in, in trying to restore the broken, that there are times it can feel like all of your acts to restore the broken can feel like a mere drop in an ocean of injustice. And you can be tempted to despair. And this morning, Jesus wants to encourage you. Fix your eyes on the horizon. The brimming eschaton is arising slowly, and there will come a day when all of your works will contribute, heap up on each other one by one until that final day when he comes and brings complete, complete goodness for all of our world and judgment. On to the second point of the parable. Throughout the parables in this passage, Jesus also reveals that this kingdom has a mixed composition. That for a time, it is to be intermixed with the world. In Matthew 13, 29 to 30, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds. That there was a man that went out and sowed wheat into his field. And at the same time, an enemy came and sowed weeds into the field. And for a time, these two, the weeds and the wheat, would grow together until the farmer at one point decides, I will separate the two. He tells another parable down in verse 47 and 48 of the dragnet, that a fisherman would throw his net out into the ocean, and he would catch both good fish and bad fish. And for a time, the good and the bad will remain together in the net. And then there will come a time when he will separate the good from the bad. Jesus reveals that for a time, he is allowing the workers of Satan and the workers of the kingdom to co-labor together in being able to form and shape this world. And there will come a time when Jesus actually separates the two. And he says, all of those that have reoriented their lives around my kingdom will be moved unto eternal life. And there are those that, that, that have rejected the reorientating, the, reorienting, the reorienting of their lives around my kingdom that will be separated unto eternal death. This similar illusion is taking place in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And the illusion of the intermixing can be heard. The seed is supposed to grow up amongst other plants. 
the leaven is supposed to mix with all the dough. Intermixing is taking place. What's the point Jesus is trying to get across here? If the first point of these two parables is that the destiny of the kingdom is to become the predominating influence by the end of the ages, the second point is how God is going to do it. Mix with the world. God's plan is not to devise some extraction strategy to get all of his righteous ones out of this bad, evil place. No, God actually loves this world. What God has designed is that he would sow his children of light into the very place where people are stumbling in the darkness until the children of light arise and turn all of the darkness to light. God is pulling back the drapes, revealing the radiance of his kingdom dream by purposefully placing his children of the kingdom into this very world with competing values, with competing agendas, until we mix with every competing value and every competing agenda until this place becomes like heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With eschaton brimming on the horizon, God's kingdom is moving towards the day where all of our labor will con- that we contribute to the wealth of the kingdoms of this world will be brought as an offering before Jesus. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Amen. So let's discuss what this will look like for us to have our earth here become like heaven. My prayer is that at this point in the message that you would have some encouragement and some joy in your faith and some renewed vision of your walk of faith. As my wife Katie and I disciple young people and see them passionately become in love with Jesus and his kingdom, we are constantly encouraging them that they don't have to go into full-time ministry to live into God's kingdom dream. We are constantly encouraging that God has formed them with individual unique passions that contribute to our culture at large. And these passions are like the range of colors on a painter's palette. That if only one color is used... Whatever that painter paints may be found monotonous. But if the range of colors are displayed, a beautiful dynamism takes place. And the culture of that painting is enlivened. You too in this room have passions uniquely given to you by God that God wants to contribute to the culture. Your life is one of the choice colors that God has personally placed on his painter's palette. And he is wanting to paint the canvas of this culture with your lives. So if you found yourself downplaying your contributions to the kingdom of God because you're not a pastor in a church or an evangelist in the church, I want to encourage you that Ephesians 4 says that these gifts of the pastor and the teacher and all the others that are mentioned are to equip you to exhibit and administer God's kingdom out there. Your role is equally as important. So what could this look like for us to take our passions and and form this world to look like heaven? There are those that have studied culture that have identified seven spheres that make up culture. I'll just read them to you. Number one, the arts and entertainment, business, education, family, government, media, and religion. These seven spheres actually form the nucleus of a culture. They dictate the values of the culture, and they actually are like a guidance. They're like a rudder that guides where the culture is going to go. In Matthew 13, Jesus says for a time that the workers of Satan and the workers of the kingdom will work together laboring, forming the culture. And he's actually allowing that. That's an amazing, amazing thought to think about. 
in light of this, I believe that Jesus' invitation is for us to move from being passive consumers of the culture to those that actively contribute to the culture. Let me explain what I'm talking about. I like to just set forth briefly the seven purposes of, the, of these aspects of culture and then talk about what, it take, what, what actually takes place in them in society. The purpose of government is to establish freedoms and boundaries for the health of a society. In culture, government becomes a place where good and evil are either restrained or endorsed. The purpose of education is to help us discover all the wonderful aspects of life that God has given us in his creation and teach us how to maximize this life. In culture, education becomes a place where the truths or lies about God and his creation are taught. The purpose of media is to communicate a message to society. When placed in culture, media becomes a place where information is interpreted through a company's agenda and ultimately through the lens of good and evil. The purpose of arts and entertainment is to reflect and celebrate the diverse creativity and radiance of the glory of God. In culture, arts and, and entertainment become a place where values and virtue are either celebrated or distorted. For the sphere of religion, God never gave people a religion. What he did was he gave them an opportunity to know the one that created them in love. When placed in culture, religion becomes nothing more than a place where people either worship God in spirit and truth or practice a religious ritual. God's purpose for family is through love to nurture and preserve the life and gifts deposited into each member so that each, person's, uh, each person fulfills God's purpose for their lives. When placed in culture, family becomes a place where either blessings that lead to life or curses that lead to decay are passed on from generation to generation. The purpose of business, finally, is to create resources so that all people will be able to live life with no physical lack. When placed in culture, though, Business becomes a place where people generate resources to benefit themselves or to benefit all people. Where people build for the kingdom of God or for the powers of darkness. These are the seven spheres of culture. As my wife and I disciple these students and as we also train churches to engage with the secular edges of their community, we observe a consistent pattern. And that pattern is this that we as Christians compartmentalize our lives. Those of us that have grown up in Christian homes and those of us that have been taught by our churches, unfortunately, have compartmentalized our faith from the rest of the lives we live and the cultures we engage in. In essence, like the Christian faith has become siloed from the other six spheres, siloed in the religious sphere. However, there are others that we encounter that believe that the kingdom of God is supposed to engage with all seven spheres, but the way they go about it is trying to operate from the religious sphere and hoping it spills over into the other six. So what they do is they pray and fast for revival. They evangelize so that people's souls will be saved from the darkness of the culture. They disciple people, and they hope by doing that, lives will be transformed and then it will spill. To this I say that, yes, prayer, revival, evangelism are all good, especially if you know me. But if we are hoping that by operating from this religion sphere, that that's going to spill into the other six spheres, we are limiting the inherent power of the kingdom. 
In essence, we are extracting the leaven from the dough it was meant to affect. Our vision statement at InterVarsity is to see students and faculty transformed, world, uh, campuses renewed, and world changers developed. In speaking about renewing the campus, we often say this. We can either go into a campus and change individual lives by extracting the fish from the pond, or we can actually renew the campus by changing the pond. We can save individual students and, and faculty souls from the darkness in the culture, or we can actually just change the culture, and the good and the bad fish together will be affected by the new culture that's developed. While the former is definitely more feasible, the latter is a dream of God. So when we disciple these college students to see their lives with their passions and their professions as a seed that God is sowing into radio, science, arts, politics, we're actually discipling them to change culture, disciple nations. You feel me? So as we discuss this in InterVarsity, we say, okay, how can we actually produce world changers? What could it actually look like to actually renew the culture of America? One of the things that we came up with was the Price of Life campaign. The Price of Life campaign is a campaign that fights human slavery today, human trafficking in our country and abroad. Currently, this is a $32 billion industry. There are 27 million slaves, 2 million of which are children. And of them, most of them are sex slaves. And so what we do with the Price of Life campaign is we engage our culture around this to, to bring awareness and also fight it. What this looks like is we've done this twice already in Ohio State and in Michigan State, and we're gearing up in October to take New York City. As we're getting ready for New York City, this is what's going to happen. What would it look like for us to engage and intermix with the kingdoms of this world? We're partnering with congressmen, senators, secular and faith-based justice organizations, university faculty, secular student organizations, churches, radio stations. We're engaging all the spheres of culture, and we're working together with them to fight this, this ill. As a result of our previous two campaigns, the spheres of government have been impacted as senators and congressmen have pushed bills forward to slow the impact of human trafficking in our country. Arts and entertainment have been influenced as over 40,000 people have been educated about the, the effect that pornography demands have on reinforcing this industry. The sphere of family is being influenced as 11-year-old girls that were sold into slavery are liberated. And then these families in these communities are being counseled by our partners at International Justice Mission to be able to be taught how to make money beyond the pennies that the slave owners give them for their kids. The sphere of religion is being impacted by the holistic message of the kingdom in the ears of our partners that we co-labor with that are disgruntled with religion. When they hear and see the kingdom of God being demonstrated that we preach, they decide they want to follow him, and over 600 of them have made decisions for Christ. The seed of God's kingdom is becoming the largest tree, and birds from all over the place are finding their home in its nest and making its nest in it. When we understand that what is at stake in our culture is the enslavement of our children, the parable that Jesus is telling about the leaven mixing with the, with the dough can no longer be a parable. It is the very call of God to us. How do you view your life? Do you see your life as a seed that God is sowing into the culture to actually change it? 
Are you seeing that God has decided to encapsulate his kingdom in your life? He is hoping to be able to have you pull back the drapes that his, the reality of his kingdom dream can be seen. The radiance and the vibrance of it can shine in the darkness. And your good works that you do before men will cause them to glorify your Father in heaven. Your life matters. My dear friends, Mike and Diane Siri, who caught this kingdom vision in the midst of their consuming careers, have an amazing, amazing story. Their daughter actually brought this, this concept up to them of what I'm talking about, about the kingdom influencing all of culture beyond the religion sphere, operating in the other six. And when, they, when she shared this with them, they immediately began to discover, you know what? We know where we're called. We're called to the sphere of family, relationships. When Mike began to share this with his friends of what was stirring in his soul, his friends said, well, it sounds like based on what you're sharing with us, you should just become a pastor of a church. When Mike and Diane kind of heard these responses, they were just saying, well, you know, that's not what bears witness in our heart. Diane, being a gifted counselor, said, hey, you know what, there are many people that I can help that are in mental and emotional anguish that would never grace the doors of a church. How am I going to get them to the prince of all peace? So what they said is, you know what, we're not going to operate in the church. We're going to operate outside the church in the other six spheres. So this is what they did. They established what is known as the Relationship Center in Wakanda. The Relationship Center is a new model. It's a new idea. It is a storefront place right in the downtown strip of Wakanda, next to the cafes, next to the, the, the bars, right in the midst where people can kind of stumble in and say, well, what is this place all about? They're meeting people that have, they have not discovered the true identity and purpose for their lives. They're meeting people whose family relationships have been torn about apart from selfish pursuits. And they're meeting people who God has become irrelevant and nothing more than a religious ritual. And I wish I had time to tell you all the stories, but this is what's happening in Wakanda. Family relationships are being restored. Now, all of us have family in here, and we know how profound of a statement that is. People that have never thought that there was a God that loved them are meeting him outside of a church. Those that had, were just like racked by emotional anguish and their own dignity and view of themselves was totally shattered. God is bringing the pieces together and they now are bringing hope to others. Mike and Diane are allowing God to use the paint that is their lives to paint the canvas of this culture with his kingdom dream. Now, as I bring this to a close, I want to ask this. What about you? Your life matters. What about your life? What aspects of God's kingdom dream will you allow him to be able to paint the culture of this world with beauty, justice, love, salvation, reconciliation? This is where we're going to participate, and this is no longer a monologue. I want you to get ready to write this down. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these to you. And he's going to share with you your sphere. He's going to share with you how you can influence your sphere. So just get ready to write. Frederick Buechner said this about discerning where you're called to in life, in the culture. The place that God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger 
meet. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now, I ask that every heart, every mind will be open to envision. Daddy, I ask that you show them right now in Jesus' name. Number one, I want you to identify the sphere that you are called to. The sphere where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And write that down. Number two, in this fear that has entered into your heart, it's usually the first thing that comes out of your heart. In this fear that God has given you a passion for, what is your vision for the kingdom of God to grow and eventually dominate that part of culture by the end of the ages? It's one thing to have the passion, but can you become an architect and, and totally see a, a building erecting in that part of culture. What can change? What would you build? What is your vision? Begin just to write some phrases down and put a note to pray about this tonight and tomorrow morning. The Lord will speak to you. And number three, as you discern the, the place that you're called, and as God begins to kind of give you the vision over this next week, I want you to ask this question. I want you to think about this. How is God positioning you to mix with the competing agendas in that sphere of influence and influence it with kingdom values? God has given you relationships. He has given you favor. He has given you, he's positioned you to impact an aspect of that culture. And I want you to think about that because our God is an amazing chess master. And he places you right next to the people. The way he's placed us next to senators and congressmen, radio jockeys, disc, disc jockeys, faculty professors and students all around this country and in New York for October's campaign. So, Father, I thank you for your love. Daddy, I thank you for the great privilege that you would come and partner with us and you would no longer call us servants but friends and bring us to the place of revealing your business to us. So, Daddy, I thank you for revealing your business to those here in this congregation. This week unfold. Reveal insight and wisdom of how they can influence this culture. In Jesus' name, amen.